You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Whether you need a battery for your truck, or a battery for your trail camera, or a specialized battery for your rangefinder, or a crazy toy that you bought for your kids, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. Stop into a local Interstate Battery retail store, talk with a specialist, get the battery that you need, and go on about your day. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. Mic check, mic check. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles. I'm jacked because we have our first success story of 2020 on the podcast today. And we're talking with returning guest Ted Bright. And Ted goes from Missouri to Nebraska, kayaks, <laughs> drives 10 hours, kayaks six miles, hikes two and a half, almost three miles, sits all day on opening day, September 1st, and kills a buck at the last possible light that a guy can shoot a deer in and and is up for 24 hours trying to retrieve this or uh, getting this deer packed out and uh, getting it back to you know in the kayak downstream back to a vehicle and it's just a really kick-ass story I'm not gonna lie it's it's that in adventure part of bow hunting that we all love and uh and love hearing stories about and that is what today's podcast is about now here's what i will say is i am i am jacked every single day i get more and more and more excited about my south dakota mule deer hunt i just had a slob show up on one of my cell cams uh, and he was far enough away for me to identify two things one he was mature two he had a big rack and that's it. But he was he was further away from the trail camera. I think he had a split G2. And that's, that's really all that it sent me. But I know exactly where I'm going to hunt. If I have a deer kind of show up, uh, I'll, I'll be bringing some more trail cameras. Not cell cams per se, but more trail cameras into the area uh, over the next couple weeks trying to identify where this deer is at. Uh, I got my gear to start getting ready for South Dakota. I got to organize everything, get everything lined up. And here's the shitty part. This is where I'm, I'm getting sad. I'm, I'm all, I'm like 90% happy right now. I'm 90%. I'm not going to say ready to go, because I still got some work to do with my bow, you know, still got to finish up my little uh, uh, regimen that I do before I, I head west and get my gear organized. But so the state of New York says that if you leave the state and you go to one of these other states and you do whatever it is that you do, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's the state next to you or if it's clear across the country, 
there's a potential that depending on what state it is, you have to quarantine for 14 days. So the guy that I want to go hunt with in South Dakota tells me that he is probably not going to be able to go, right? He, it's not looking good is what he said. And this now flips my excitement level because now I'm pissed because now it's not our hunt. This was our hunt. Like the first time I ever went on this hunt, I went with him. And I don't really envision myself going with anybody else because this is kind of my hunting buddy. This is our hunt. This is what we had planned to do. And now there's a chance that this doesn't happen because of this this virus. That that he can't take a week off of work and then quarantine two more weeks after that. It just it's not possible for him to do that. And that really pisses me off. So now I'm having to think about what I'm going to do and I it, I'm going to South Dakota I'm going to hunt and it sounds to me like I'm probably going to have to do this by myself and it, you know if I, I'm, I'm really sending good vibes out there I'm really hoping and praying that he can he can make it and he can make it work and we can make it work and he can come but it's going to be a whole different aspect of going and doing a, a bigger hunt like this solo. I know a lot of people do it, but uh, it's always cool to have, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just envisioning last year's hunt by myself. There's no way I'm packing out 200 pounds or 150 pounds worth of meat or whatever, whatever it was that we got off of this meal there by myself in one trip, right? It's, that would be a two trip for sure, a two trip, possibly three trips, uh, going in and getting uh, getting that deer out. And man, I'm, I tell you right now, I it would suck. But you know, sometimes you gotta. I think it would be awesome building. You know, like it would be an awesome adventure to say, hey, dude, I went and I did this by myself and I was successful by myself. That is awesome. That would be awesome. But there's like when it comes to whitetails, and I'm kind of rambling on now, but when it comes to whitetails, man, I'm I kind of like being solo. But when it comes to one of these big adventure hunts, I think it's cool to go with, you know, at least one other person. And uh, but I've never done a big elk hunt or a big mule deer hunt, other than I went to Nebraska one year, but I I slept in, in a basement of a house, right? I didn't, it wasn't a backcountry hunt per se. So it's a little different. So those are just kind of some of the random thoughts I got going in my head. I, I, I got this excitement in me, but I, I got this, this sense of, I'm, I feel sorry for the guy because he's equally as jacked as me about this, but you know, it is what it is. He's, he's not the only guy. I've heard a lot of stories this year about guys having to cancel their, their trips because of this damn virus. And um, it just really sucks, man. I just kind of, I, I wish I could snap my, snap my fingers and uh, it goes away and we could go hunting. But that's not how it works. So anyway, we got to do a commercial before we get into today's podcast. And you've heard me talk about Vortex several times man these guys have some outstanding optics and not only is the glass good it's great in low light um i got the i got a set of binoculars that i've had for like eight years nine years no 
eight years and I've had them sent in on warranty two times. And if you don't know what their warranty is, uh, you smash them, you break them, you light them on fire, a dog eats them, then craps them out. You send them in and they will fix it for free. No charge to you, right? That's it. And uh, I'm excited to use their uh, new rangefinder out in um, out west. I'm excited to use their the the old range uh, the old uh, spotting scope that uh, that I used last year. I mean, it's just it's really good optics, right? The razors, right? And uh, I just I, I love like I'm envisioning myself sitting on top of this this giant uh, hill across the valley watching these mule deers come off the mule deer come off these flat down into these drainages on a morning hunt and sitting there putting my eye in the spotting scope just watching them come down man and uh, vortex make, makes a absolute great product line uh, rifle scopes spotting scopes range finders binoculars you name it they make it and uh, the best part about all is I really like the people that work there and they're really easy to communicate with and I love the the fact that these people are participants in the activity that they market towards. So uh, they market towards rifles, you know, rifle scopes. These guys shoot. They market towards spotting scopes and binoculars, right? These guys hunt and fish. And, you know, I'm sure there's a group of people at Vortex that watch birds and just love, like, nature and Man, that is what it's all about when it comes down to it. So if you want to find out more information about Vortex Optics, visit VortexOptics.com and take a look at their apparel line. They have a brand new uh, line of apparel as well. So let's get into today's success story with Ted Bright. Three, two, one. All right. On the phone with me now, Mr. Ted Bright. Ted, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Howdy, Dan. Glad to be on again. Yeah, man. Uh, so anytime, uh, anytime anybody's on the podcast, right, we, we're going to either talk about strategy, we're going to talk about, you know, maybe the past, what got them into hunting, that kind of stuff. Or in your case, we're going to talk about success. And th- you are the first episode success story to come out of the 2020 season. So kudos to you, my friend. Very good, very good. I'm excited about it. Cool. You know, it's it's fun BSing and it's fun talking, you know, high level season strategy and expectations and all that. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, you and I are probably of the same ilk and a lot of your listeners. It's like there's nothing more exciting than the tactics of an individual hunt, you know, Absolutely. getting into the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts and why you did this then and, and how it worked out and then, you know, hopefully the ultimate success. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So before uh, we get into this episode, though, I got to BS with you a little bit. And what is on my mind right now and what what is actually on my tongue is I just and I'm going to brag here a little bit about myself, but I just crushed a homemade pasta sauce uh, from garden tomatoes, ingredients from the garden, you know, some store-bought stuff. Uh, and then I mixed it with venison. Uh, and that was the spaghetti sauce over angel hair pasta. And I'm not going to lie, but I crushed it. I could have won some kind of rookie cook on the Food Channel type award, I feel. It was that good. 
Did you crush the eating or the cooking or both? No, I I crushed the cooking part of it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I uh, and I know following you on Instagram that you and your wife do a lot of cooking of wild game. What are some of your favorite recipes? Oh man, I, it's endless. But I got to tell you, right now, as as I'm in the like on the other side of the house, I am entrusting my wife with uh, with sauteing a, a venison backstrap. So. Okay. <laughs> lots of interesting things going on here right um uh, you know i mean i love and of course a backstrap uh you know grilled or salt, pan sauteed medium rare you know is, is excellent but I probably one of my favorites is just to to put up a whole quarter you know I, i'll either put it right on the grill you know what i mean after letting it age for uh two weeks is is like my i've kind of experimented with this and two weeks is the perfect aging uh, in my garage refrigerator for venison that, that I found. So while after two weeks, you know, I'll put it right on the grill or in the freezer it goes, you know, and gr- uh, smoking kind of slash indirect grilling uh, the, the hind quarters and the front quarters is one of my favorites because it's delicious right off the grill. Yeah. And then you've got leftovers the next night with just the, you know, the venison as it is. And then you've got leftovers for nights after that with fajitas, uh, oh, yeah. shredded barbecue style. You know, it's like it's like the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> All right, um, man, I have not. I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna show a little uh, chink in my armor here. I have not mastered the grill when it comes to backstraps, and I think it's because the you know different grills different heats, different uh, temperatures, all these things that are kind of inconsistent. So whenever I do cook a backstrap, it's always on a pan. And I can make a really good backstrap on a on a pan, but, man, I just have not mastered the grill type yet. Oh, man. So when you cook it in a pan, are you cutting it into individual fillets or are you, like, cutting it in half and grilling, the, like, the whole backstrap? Yeah, no. So what I'll do is I'll probably cut the the backstrap itself. You know, it's fairly long, uh, especially on a buck, right? Uh, I'll cut it into three sections, and then that's what I tell, you know, that's what I freeze it as. And then when it's time to uh, pull it out, I let it thaw, get to room temperature, do my seasoning, you know, in Worcestershire sauce, olive oil, some soy sauce, just depending, you know, season it to whatever you want. And then I'll throw it, uh, put a little olive oil on the pan, throw it on the pan, and then, you know, let it do its thing for two minutes, get the meat thermometer out, whatever, and flip it with, uh, you know, when I flip it, then I add butter to the other side of the pan, and I'll sprinkle rosemary in with that uh, butter, and as the other side cooks, I am scooping that melted uh, butter rosemary mixture on top of the uh, the backstrap. Oh, like now I want to go eat a second supper after talking about that. Hey, that sounds great to me. I don't, uh, you can't go wrong with that. Right. Absolutely. Any, any, uh, anything crazy that you've ever tried? Have you tried heart? Do you keep the liver or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, we definitely eat the heart. Uh, I, I have found that venison heart is the best meat for, uh, for fajitas mm-hmm. for whatever reason just a, a thinly sliced heart you know so a lot of times i'll i'll just throw it on the grill um you know while i'm grilling something else 
And then the next day I'll slice that sucker thin, you know, so it's cooked. And then when it's cold, you know, you can always slice it better. So cooked and cold and then thin sliced. And then it makes the best fajita meat. Okay. Uh, I, I haven't dabbled in liver too much, but I, I guess what most people would consider to be the craziest thing. Uh, not too long ago, my son and I, uh, well, my son killed a groundhog. And, and we, I grilled that sucker up. And I'm telling you what, Dan, it was absolutely delicious. What did you do you to know, it? Most people just have preconceptions of what a groundhog is. I just grilled it. Okay. Uh, I grilled it to like, you know, a medium rare on, on the first go around. And I mean, it's a 20 pound groundhog. So uh, it was delicious right off the grill, medium rare that night. And then the next night, I just added some like potatoes and carrots to it. And I put it in like a, uh, an aluminum foil container and put it on the grill and cooked it down a little bit, you know, to where it was more well done, kind of falling apart. And that was excellent. And then there was enough left over to make uh, like a shredded barbecue out of it. And I, every step along the way, it was just got better and better, I think. Okay. Uh, I know exactly where a groundhog lives. So I might have to go take advantage of, of that and take your word for it. Because I, I just, for some reason, I just imagined uh, one of your neighbors looking over your fence at you grilling a groundhog, which could be per, like, it could look like a cat or... <laughs> Or a, or a small dog <laughs> after the after the furs off of it. Oh yeah, the idea of it will scare everyone away, including <laughs> your wife. I'm sure of it. But just don't say a word on what it is, and I yeah. promise you that it will go over like like uh, like white on rice. I mean, everybody will love it. Did you cook it like meat on the bone and just kind of, or did you take the meat off of it? I I threw the whole darn groundhog on the grill. Of course, okay. after you know, cleaning it and everything. Right, right. Okay. Oh, man. I want to kill a groundhog now. <laughs> I'm telling you, that meat is delicious. And you think about what they eat. You know, it's all lush vegetation, you know. And I was sitting here watching this groundhog out my window, like you, and I had missed it a couple of times. Actually, so I think I kind of personal, but I was watching this groundhog eat clover in a horse pasture. You know, I'm like, there's that thing has to taste good. What? There's no way it can't taste good. You know? Right. And, Sure enough. I mean, it is delicious. Okay. Well, you heard it from Ted Bright, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, go kill a groundhog and eat it. So, Yeah, I even made a video on my YouTube channel, so check it out. Perfect. Perfect. All right. So now why you're on today. Uh, a, little, uh, a little September success. Or was it late August or September? When did you, when did you kill this deer? Well, I, I thought we were coming on to talk about the groundhog. Oh, okay. Well, hey, have a good day. We'll talk to you later, man. <laughs> I, I don't think we've ever had uh, a uh, uh, a strategy and tactics about groundhog hunting, but maybe we should. <laughs> right. Well, you point the five five six right out the kitchen window. And <laughs> exactly. What hey, we were did. you in a saddle uh, while you did it? No, I was sitting right next to the kitchen sink. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So, so let's talk about this whitetail that you killed, man. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, so it was September the 1st. It okay. was the opener in Nebraska. All right. So let's talk, because you live in Missouri. So let's talk a little bit about why did you decide to go out to Nebraska and uh, what part of Nebraska? And, and was this your first early season Nebraska hunt? Yeah, all right. So, uh, yes, 
I, I chose Nebraska because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get drawn anywhere this year or anything like that. And I know it's over the counter. It starts early. And I just wanted to get on the board early. You know, that, that's it. It was really that simple. Um, I, I think that probably the most valuable tool that you can rely on is your network, you know? So I just kind of talked to people and, and wanted to get some ideas on, you know, some potential good spots to go. And I, you know, uh, had a, a list basically, you know, of a few different places. And then, you know, I cross-referenced that to Onyx with, and my opinions of where I would be able to have success. And I, you know, I settled on a, on a, on a spot where I'd have some, uh, you know, I, I prefer hunting timber areas. Uh, Nebraska has a lot of wide open plains, you know, the high plains. So, uh, you know, I was able to hone in on a, on a, on a river Valley, you know what I mean? That had a, enough timber that would make it a good hunt for me. And so, yeah, that's how I went about it. Okay. So were you close to Iowa or how far into the state were you? Uh, we were in central Nebraska. Central. Okay. All right. So yeah. a, a good clip from where you're at. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was like 10 hour drive from where I am. Okay. And I'd never, uh, to answer your other question, I'd never hunted Nebraska before really only ever drove through Nebraska on my way to Montana for hunting. I gotcha. So why of all the States that you could have hunted early season, w- did you choose Nebraska? Over the counter and a September 1st opener. Okay. I think there's only a, a, a handful of other states that have September 1st whitetail openers. Um, and I'm drawing a blank of which one. It, Kentucky may – is Kentucky a September 1st opener? It's the first Saturday in September. Okay. So what was that, like the 4th or something like that? Gotcha, yeah. And then Tennessee does the Velvet Hunt, which yeah. is the last weekend in August. And – in Tennessee, they've kind of expanded that in the CWD zones to where you can actually hunt with a rifle now. Yeah. Okay. All right. So but you're right, though. You know, most of them are, are are later. And Nebraska, you know, I guess because of how it's located, it kind of takes on some of the tendencies of, of you know, an, an early whitetail Midwestern state. But it also has the, the, the tendencies of the, the West, which, you know, in the Western state, a lot of the seasons open a lot earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And I've hunted Nebraska before. It's it's been a while, but I've I've hunted some whitetails out there. I hunted some muleys out there uh and antelope. I had a antelope and then a deer tag and the deer tag allowed me to shoot either a mule deer or a whitetail. Did you go out there knowing that it was going to be whitetail that was going to be your target or were you open to the the mule deer as well? Uh, I mean, I was open to it, you know, but it, I knew there would be a target of opportunity. Uh, I was looking to get a kill out of the saddle. So obviously I was looking for a tree, you know, you can't right. necessarily hang a, a saddle in a, an open prairie area. But uh, so, yeah, I was looking for the, the river bottoms, which hold the trees and the river bottoms and the trees seem to marry up better with the whitetail. Got you. All right. So how long ago did you make the decision to hunt Nebraska? Uh, probably a month ago. Oh, so this, this was relatively short notice. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. So within that one month time frame, how did you go about planning for this hunt and talk a little bit about using your network 
And then what you did from there, you know, I'm assuming that because you only made the decision a month ago that going and actually doing some boots on the ground scouting was a no go and it was left to digital scouting. So walk us through that whole process. Yeah. All right. So, you know, relying on the network, that's just, you know, phone conversations, messages, you know, whatever else to get, you know, like I said earlier, a, a list of places that are good potentials, you know, and then of course that place, that list is going to be ranked. And then, you know, from there, it's just, it's all on X cyber scouting uh, and Google earth, you know, uh, but yeah, so I'd cyber scout and then, you know, I talked to wildlife biologists and, uh, you know, when I talked to the wildlife biologist for the area that I, that I had intended on going, that basically was the, that sealed the deal. You know, I, I knew that by after talking to him for an hour, uh, that this is the place that I wanted to go. Okay. And then, and then that's when you, when, when you say the place, how big, how many acres was the place that you wanted to start focusing in on? 20,000 acres. Okay. 20,000 acres of river bottom ground in central, uh, you know, central Nebraska. How did you go about breaking down? Because you can't, as we all know, you can't hunt 20,000 acres. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, from there you start at the access points. Uh, look at what, what everybody can access. And then, you know, my, what I've kind of always done is narrow it down to what can I access? Uh, you know, what can I access that 90% of people aren't going to access? And, you know, that ended up being the difference maker. Um, as you know, I mean, it's hard saying, you know, could I have killed something closer to a, a parking lot or whatever, but it really ended up being the difference maker in being able to get back there on opening day and not seeing another hunter and, you know, ultimately a successful hunt. But, you know, I was looking at some creative access areas and I was able to identify a place where I could access via kayak. And so we, you know, my, uh, Dylan Hazen was with me and he was uh, filming the entire thing. So, uh, the hunt will be published on the tethered YouTube channel here in a couple of weeks. But, you know, I, scouted out this area that him and I would be able to access via kayak. And we did about six miles of floating. And then, you know, I had that like in the dark, you know, legit floating, uh, 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 not just a stagnant water, easy going Sunday float trip. You know, we were navigating some, some decent riffles and, you know, it was, it was exciting. And so anyway, we had uh, identified the access of about six mile kayak in, and we had about a two mile walk from there. And so that's kind of what I was looking at. Okay. So that's a big commitment. Uh, did you t- like, was this a, a backpack back country style hunt where you slept out of a tent or was that your daily routine to kayak in six miles every day and then go to, uh, the two mile hike to get to the, where, where you thought the, the deer were at? Well, that would be a hell of a daily routine. Yeah. Uh, so fortunately, I was able to harvest them on opening day. So, uh, but that's not to say that, you know, there, there was two days of scouting that led up to that. And, you know, so it was essentially three days of doing that, although it wasn't as extreme as, you know, making sure we were in there, um, you know, during the dark to get set up for the morning and everything. But, 
Uh, we had basically walked in on day one and just kind of got a feel for the land in general. And then day two, we basically rehearsed the, uh, you know, what we were going to do. So we, we kayaked in and, you know, we, we uh, walked back to the area two miles in. It was like an hour hike up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, but you can't do that in the dark on opening day and expect to have success. You know, you have to have done that prior, right? That, that doesn't just happen overnight. Uh, so we practiced that the day before and then on opening day, that's, uh, that's exactly what we did. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about what the terrain looked like, right? Obviously you are taking a waterway in, so I'm assuming river bottoms, how much timber, uh, was around you? What was the terrain like? And then, um, I mean, you were there for such a, a short period of time, how, you know, maybe hypothesize how the deer were using this area so this particular piece of property is surrounded in in ag you know there are some soybeans some corn and you know quite a bit of alfalfa as you would expect for the the high plains area you know a lot of uh pivot irrigation types of systems on the adjoining farms and everything and, you know, those high plains then have the river valleys that go through them. And the river valleys have the fingers of creeks that extend from the rivers, with, which are mostly wooded. And, you know, the, so, you know, that's typically where you're going to find a lot of the whitetail. They're going to, you know, spend their days in there and then they go out to the ag at night. And uh, so that's kind of what we're, we're looking at. And, you know, again, we kayaked in. Uh, we were setting up on deer movement from ag in the morning to uh you know to the bedding area uh in those finger wood fingers and everything and one of the um one of the most critical pieces that that made it all come together is you know i'm familiar with hunting in montana and i I didn't realize at the time how similar the terrain the landscape and the uh, the vegetation is in that area of Nebraska relative to uh, like central Western Montana around the Bob Marshall, where I've hunted numerous times. It's very, very similar. The only thing really different is that there's oak trees in the, in the bottoms, which hold acorns, which, you know, uh, feed whitetail, of course. Uh, But outside of that, it's very, very similar. So in, in hindsight, I, I recognize on cyber scouting that there were, some beaver ponds in this, in, in this piece of property. And, you know, I think you know, it's pretty easy to recognize a beaver pond when you're looking at aerial scouting, because there's going to be some type of a hard line, you know, and there's going to be a Creek bottom, some type of a hard line. And then you're going to see, you know, like a, some type of a, a little pond or something, you know, but the rest of that, that drainage will just look like a Creek. And then it'll kind of open up and you'll see this pond on the backside of a hard line, which is the beaver dam. So I recognized a couple of those areas and, you know, I knew from my uh, central Western Montana hunting experience that those are typically very game rich environments. And, you know, I've I've had great success elk hunting and deer hunting around those beaver ponds. And so I I definitely marked those as places that I wanted to scout and even glass, you know, um, in the evening, especially. And so those first two days, we did just that, and we saw a lot of deer activity around those those beaver ponds. So that told me that, you know, it was 
it was super hot and dry in the weeks leading up to our Nebraska hunt. So that even made it more appealing that these low-lying marshy areas uh, and beaver ponds would be teeming with, with wildlife. And sure enough, it, it was, and those deer were coming in there pretty much every day from what I could tell that, you know, the three days, that, two days of scouting and one day of hunting, I mean, even midday activity, they were coming into these beaver ponds. And was that to just get a drink or was that just where, where they were betting? Uh, both. I mean, we saw deer literally like, it's interesting out, out West because the whitetail will like run from place to place or at least trot jog, you know, uh, which is so different than, or, you know, around where I live in Missouri, but they will just trot right in to the pond and stick their head down in that water and get a drink. We, we even watched a little buck, not only just sit there and drink from the pond, but he was sticking his head completely underwater and he would come up with like with vegetation, underwater vegetation, hanging out of both sides of his mouth and dripping. And uh, so the, he, he wasn't just drinking, he was eating. And this is at two o'clock in the afternoon. And then there was a deer on opening day that we watched his eight pointer. He was bedded at, when we, when we got set up there in the mid morning, because we, we did two different, we hunted the river bottom in the morning and then we transitioned back to that marshy area in the like 1130 we were set up. Anyway, we from 11:30 till what six o'clock, seven o'clock, whatever. Uh, this deer was bedded at 128 yards at 11:30, and throughout the day he would just get up and he grad ever so gradually worked his way towards us till he was literally at like 50 yards away when I shot the 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 other buck that came in. But to answer your question, they were doing everything from bedding to feeding to drinking to there was definitely also like you know social uh, hierarchy things and going on, you know, it wasn't just a drinking hole or an eating hole or a bedding hole. There was lots of deer activity going on around them. Gotcha. And I take it that this was, um, with it being the, the Nebraska, you know, which you just, you said earlier, which is a wide open, uh, state for the most part, uh, except on the rivers, you know, you got your timber and your, you know, the fingers coming in and out of the main river, but, with with the deer concentrate you know deer concentrating in that area it's kind, it sounds to me like it's kind of uh it's just they're there it's not like missouri you know it's not like iowa where it's big timber and they're betting in certain you know on on the terrain and, and all that stuff when you got down into the the river bottom was it fairly flat mm. In areas it was, and then in areas it's, you know, uh, sheer bluff. Uh, so, you know, it really went both ways. Okay. All right. So you got in there on, you, you got in there on the first evening and, and you did some scouting? Yeah, two days prior to the season opening. Okay. The first day of scouting we we would just walk in and got a general feel of the land the second day of scouting we basically rehearsed our whole plan for opening day okay and you you did the six mile uh kayak and and the two mile walk as kind of a rehearsal you said right okay all right all right so never introduce a variable on game day right 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 so let me ask you this then um you did that 
did you, as you did the, that boots on the ground scouting, that rehearsal, did you see a lot of good sign in there that got you excited for that next morning's hunt? Yeah. I mean, we saw some deer, you know, because it's, uh, you know, one of the unique things about it, it's, it's, you know, you, you got deer hunting kind of like the Midwest, but yet it's the country of the West. And so, you know, it's kind of like this adventurous aspect to it and the athletic style of Western hunting. That was really another thing that really lured me to it. Is it was kind of the best of both worlds. So, you know, we, we had the, the Western style of hunting. Um, so we were able to see deer at long ranges and long distances. You know, we, we glassed a, 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 a nice group of three bucks at 500 yards, you know, you couldn't really do that around here. You know, I mean, I guess you could sit at the edge of an ag field, but that's a little bit different yeah. than, you know, seeing across three canyons and spotting them, you know, working their way in, uh, into bedding in the morning at 500 yards, you know, that, so we've got that Western aspect to it, which is really cool. Uh, so we were actually able to, you know, see deer and get visual confirmation of deer and what they were doing because to answer your question, the sign this time of year, you know, there's, it's not like bucks are laying down scrapes and rubs all over the place. You know, I mean, we did see a couple, uh, but it's just not that much, you know, and uh, there was a couple of, of oak trees, bur oaks that were starting to drop, but again, just not enough that you could really play that card. Um, so the sign is kind of minimal, you know what I mean? You're gonna, you know, see some trails and such, but and they're not laying down sign in late August into September 1st, like they are in, uh, September going into October, you know? Right. Okay. So on this rehearsal trip, were you taking multiple stops on this six mile, you know, hike or this kayak, uh, trip in to get out and glass, get out and glass, or did you know exactly where you were going to go through digital scouting? Yeah, we knew where we were going to go, and it was more critical that we had it timed out. So okay. we knew that it took an hour and a half to get there okay, via kayak, you know, and then an hour walk to get back. But we knew that's what, that was more important than glassing. And even though we did see an, an elk on the way in, and, you know, of course, we, uh, we slowed down and filmed it and everything like that. But, um, you know, by and large, mission A of, of that kayaking trip on the scout was to acquire the time that it would take to get to uh you know or where we wanted to take out okay and then did you walk the two miles in too yes okay so that's a pretty hefty uh morning uh commute to get into you know to access a, a certain area and you're not even leaving a tree stand up because you're hunting from a saddle so when you got in there got to the destination uh like how did you verify that this in fact was the place that you wanted to wanted to hunt and not say, well, well you know, now that we have boots on the ground, we don't, you know, there's nothing here. Things have changed. It's not good. Yeah. That's when we set up an observation post on a knob overlooking this uh, beaver pond marshy area. And we saw like four bucks. So, you know, it was pretty simple. We knew that exactly what we wanted to do. And, you know, then, although we didn't have an exact tree picked out, you know, because the situation, um, you know, how it goes, the conditions change and everything like that. Um, 
and I really didn't make up my mind exactly where we were going to hunt until um, the approach on the next day. Okay. Because the you know the wind was supposed if if we would have made up our mind that the day before the wind was supposed to be steadily out of the south, and then literally when we got back there and we're like we're we are preparing for the final approach, and we, I, I looked at the weather you know and you know I just wanted to get last, last confirmation before making the determination, and sure enough, the wind was going to be shifting right about five o'clock to the west. And then 5:30, the northwest, six o'clock, it was going to be out of the uh, the yeah the northwest, steady for the rest of the evening. And you know, if, so who would have made a predetermined decision there uh, that really could have hurt us? So we kept it open until basically the very last minute when you're using the most recent intelligence. Gotcha. All right. So as you're sitting there and you're glassing uh, that evening, what did you see? Uh, I mean, what sticks out to me, because we saw a bunch of deer doing a bunch of different deer things, but what sticks out to me, and I'll, it was one of those scenes that you just, it's like etched in your mind, you know, there was a dominant nine-pointer. And, you know, in that area, it's not, there's there's not Boone and Crockett bucks taken every year, you know. I mean, it's the genetics aren't great. Uh, but the, the deer there are, are big. They're bigger than they are here. And they seem to have a decent amount of mass to their antlers. But... At any rate, um, so we were sitting there on that knob glassing, and basically directly across from us uh, at 1.22 in the, in the afternoon, we saw a, a nine-pointer uh, basically just kind of run, trot, I guess you'd say, directly down the opposing hillside and into the uh, his, like belly-deep water and took a big drink, and then we watched him mill around for like a half hour, and then he bedded down in the high marsh grass and uh, that was that was really cool again we saw a bunch of other deer but the way that this nine pointer made his presence felt in that marsh you could tell he was he was hard horned for one thing and you know he was uh he was quite visibly asserting himself as the dominant buck or so he thought you know that's that's why <laughs> i think i think he believed that i think he believed that with every inch of his fiber of his being you know yeah. Uh, and so from there on out, I really, that was kind of my target, you know, and I, I wanted to harvest that buck, although it didn't happen. Um, yeah, that was kind of etched in my mind and we saw that. And then, you know, again, we saw a bunch of other deer. We, in fact, we saw a 10 pointer that probably had a little bit bigger rack and, but he was still in full velvet. So it's tough to compare, but he, uh, we watched him get up. He was bedded probably a hundred yards from us in that tall, tall marsh grass for who knows like two the two hours that we were there and he finally got up and and walked off when a, a doe blew at us or whatever when the wind shifted but um yeah so that nine pointer though that was really cool and he he drew my eye as my as my a number one target gotcha so how many total deer did you see i mean was there was it a numbers game or was it uh I don't know, like, because where, where I was at when I went to Nebraska, it was low low numbers. But like you, I could see for a long way, so it allowed me to make a move to where I wanted to make a move. You hit the nail on the head. Low deer density, but, you know, if, if you know what you're doing and you know how to get to a spot where you can observe, uh, you're going to see 
a lot of the deer that are going to be in that given area. So that, you know, it kind of, again, it's that Western style hunting, you know, it makes it a little bit easier to hunt, but there's not as many deer, you know, and I don't think that the deer are quite as patternable there as they are here in the Midwest. Okay. So you, you kind of acquired a target, right? You, you saw this nine pointer and you said to yourself, I want that deer. Now, the next morning when you're actually, you know, launching your plan of attack, were the decisions that you made to pick out that whatever tree that you sat on for that specific buck or was it for deer movement in general? Well, I mean, you know, while I wanted to definitely get a crack at that buck, you know, I felt like uh, the best odds of us getting a crack at at any buck were going to be probably in the, in, in one particular corner of this marsh that was favorable for the wind and the thermals once we got in there. And, you know, I, again, I don't think the deer are as patternable there. So I don't, I don't think that nine pointer is bedding in the same, uh, you know, on the same hillside, you know, for a four to eight day period, like we typically will see here in the Midwest. Um, I, I had no idea really which way to say that buck was going to be bedded. Although I felt like he was going to come down into that marsh in the evening and he did. Um, but again, you know, with the, in the evening like that, you got to really play the thermal. So I didn't feel that we could even get in there in the dark and make a really good solid play because of the conditions. So what we did is we actually hunted um, closer to the kayak, you know, after we got out in the, in the early morning. And then we hunted there for a couple hours and, you know, I think we saw a doe or whatever and it didn't, it was, you know, it was about what we expected. It wasn't great. But the play, the ultimate play was, you know, to get back there late morning and get set up for the entire afternoon evening hunt. And that's what we did. Okay. Okay. So this was an all day. You had planned to hunt all day. Absolutely. Okay. All right. And so you, you saw, how many deer did you see on that morning, that morning set? I think it was just one doe. Just one doe. And then, but nothing like you didn't see a specific buck you wanted to chase 500, 600 yards away. No, no. Okay. All right. So as you know, you're, you're coming up with this game plan for the evening. What was going on in your head of how you were going to attack and, or, or make your move away from the first position that you sat up on? Well, I mean, that's pretty simple. It was huff it back there as fast as you can <laughs> and uh, don't kill yourself and, because it is. I mean, it's, it's rough country. I mean, it, like I said, it's very similar to Montana hunting. I mean, it was, you know, it's, uh, it's back country for sure. So, you know, let's get back there as fast as we can. Uh, you know, while conserving water and food and everything like that. Um, And then get set up in a favorable position to hunt the rest of the day. But what that meant was that we had to stop, you know, before that final approach and determine which way, A, where we're going to set up and B, how we're going to get there. And that ended up being the most critical component to it because that deer actually ended up coming from behind us in a, from a, uh, a drainage woodlot 
that we did like an extremely wide plank. So if, if we would have just walked straight to the, the area where, where we hunted in, in, the, in the tree that we hunted, uh, then we would have walked through the, the drainage woodlot that this buck was bedded in. And instead, you know, we looked at the conditions and I made the determination that we were going to do an extra wide flank around there just in case that woodlot was holding any deer. And sure enough, that extra wide flanking maneuver paid off because, you know, that, that buck came from that direction. Okay. So walk us through then, you know, as you, you know, as you flanked this, this big lot, this big timber lot that had this, uh, you know, the, the drainage coming off of it, walk us through the final hundred yards to how you decided to pick the tree that you ultimately set up in. So we, we flanked around the woodlot and we came down, you know, and again, we basically turned a two mile walk into like a probably two and a quarter just to go around that woodlot. So we were approaching kind of from the north, I guess you'd say. And uh, we got to basically the corner of the, of the marshy area where that woodlot drained down into it. And I, I it just seemed pretty obvious to me, you know, a lot of the trees out there are very difficult. You're not even going to be able to, you know, most of them you're not even going to be able to hunt out of a saddle in them, let alone a tree stand. But here nor there, because, it, you know, it's just, they're crooked trees. They're, you know, growing, you know, 80 degrees off the, the uh, off the ground. What a, you know, crazy yeah. things. Uh, but there were, there was a cluster of hickory trees that um they had a lot of limbs on them but they were just really small limbs for some reason I, I don't know why but they were really small limbs that you know it just it took us a while to climb um you know and, and we did our best to, to not have to break any off or anything like that you know because of the public land aspect of it but um you know so it took us a while but we got set up on these trees in the corner of the marsh that was favorable for the wind at the time the forecasted wind and then the thermals also and of course, you know, we, we had our, uh, our entry trail jived with all of that, with the wind and the thermal. Okay. So you set up, you got set up, what was your wind and what were the thermals doing in, in, uh, respect to where you thought the deer were going to coming, come from? Well, so these, you know, these marshes are pretty big, so you could literally almost expect to have deer come from any direction because the, the deer could be bedded out in the marsh or they could be bedded up on the opposing hillsides and the, in the fingers of timber. Uh, so at, it's just really hard to say which way they're going to go, but we put ourselves in the most favorable position because we were on the corner closest to the ag. So, you know, it was 90 degrees that day and it was dry, hot and dry. So, you know, our figuring was that those deer were going to filter down into that, marshy pond area get a drink and then you know probably browse and do their staging hierarchy deer stuff and then work on their way towards ag so that's what we kind of set up for and it just worked out that the wind was coming out of the south at first which was perfect basically although it was going to be shifting to the west and the northwest but we also knew that the thermals were going to uh, you know, take over once, you know, that sun went down and the, and the wind calmed down a little bit. 
and we basically had to to give up that one side of the marsh and we, we decided to be okay with doing that but knowing that the deer could have been coming from any of the fingers or out in that marsh and it would have been fine so it was a, i kind of looked at it like a small sacrifice yeah so you decided you know what screw this i feel like a majority of this marsh is gonna did it did it kind of funnel down towards you no no it was pretty pretty even okay if anything it maybe opened up a little bit more on the the top side where we were but it was pretty pretty evenly distributed gotcha okay all right so um you sacrificed part of uh part of this marsh area because you like you felt that the deer were going to be coming from the rest of it yes okay all right cool or the finger you know the the fingers of timber leading into it okay i'm just trying to paint a picture of the, the lay of the land and what your what your wind is you know what your wind was doing uh and the thermals were they were leading up to high ground at that point well the wind was so strong that it was just you know the thermals weren't really doing anything um well i shouldn't say they were going with the wind you know gotcha it's hot and dry and the the wind and the thermals were working together okay all right all right so um how long uh, what time of day were you completely set up and ready to rock oh we were probably 11 30 i'd say we were set up and ready to go 11 30 yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, and this is where you were going to spend the rest of the day. Yes. Okay. So and... you had potentially a, an, an eight hour sit in front of you. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it was. Cause you know, I ended up killing the buck pretty much right before dark. So yeah, okay. that's exactly what it was. Okay. Uh, and that's, you know, first sit of the year that's, uh, Gosh, by the time the rut gets around, you're just ready. You know, I mean, that's fine. All day sit, no big deal, right? Well, first of all, that time of year, an eight-hour sit is almost all day. Yeah. But, you know, keep in mind, we sat for three hours in the morning. Yeah. Um, but just being in shape to sit in a tree that long, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, was, it was tough. Yeah. So uh, were you in direct sun all day? Was there cloud cover? Were you in the shade? What was the temperature? Well, fortunately, I set up at an angle that was a little more conducive. Dylan, who's from Wisconsin and pale skinned, light complected, uh, he was a little bit more in the sun. Uh, but yeah, so it worked out good. But, you know, he was, uh, he had to ship a couple of times to, to try to stay on the shaded side of the tree. But I was basically, you know, kind of on the, uh, I guess you'd say the, the northeast side of the tree. So, you know, by the time we got there, the sun was, you know, basically due south. And I was pretty much in the shade the rest of the day. Again, Dylan had to kind of shift a little bit, but it wasn't too bad. Okay. What about, uh, how long before deer, you started seeing deer? Not long at all. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that that eight pointer that we watched all day was the first deer that we saw. And he was bedded in the shade at 128 yards away. And we would just see him on and off throughout the day. And, you know, just periodically does and fawns and, 
uh, we saw a pretty, I don't know, we saw a pile of deer basically kind of evenly spread out throughout the day. There was never a lull of more than an hour where we didn't see deer. Okay. Well, that that keeps things interesting, you know, as opposed from sitting for eight hours and not seeing a single deer until, you know, it's game time. Yeah, definitely. How many uh, deer actually walked within shooting lane before, or within shooting range before your buck? None. None. Okay. So this guy. And again, I can, I mean, I can see probably, if I diagonally across this marsh, probably 500 yards, you know, so. The deer that we saw, yeah, none of them were in range. None of them were in range. Okay. All right. So this break it down for me now. Uh, walk us through from the time you saw your buck to the time you drew back. All right. So it was right at the time where the wind settled down and the thermals took over. And, I, I mean, Dan, it couldn't have been more than – just a couple of minutes after that, you know, and it's, it's not like that's a hard stop time. It's going to be kind of gradual, but this buck walked out from behind us, you know, again, from the woodlot that we, you know, made the wide flanking maneuver around just in case. And when you looked at the situation, it would have been so easy to think the wind is blowing up there. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's not going to work out there. You might as well just walk straight to your spot. But we didn't, we, you know, we figured we had kayaked in six miles. We've walked two miles. Why not go the extra, you know, whatever it was, half mile, quarter mile, half mile, whatever. Right. But it was up and down these big hills, you know, so we did it. And <clears throat> so we left that, that woodlot undisturbed. And right at the time when the thermals took over and started going down, a lo- basically along the eastern slope of the marsh, um, the deer emerged from what must have been just off wind from where our scent was blowing the majority of the day. I, I mean, it was just so close, but again, you know, it's like, that's why you go the extra mile. So that deer came out from behind us and in typical fashion, you know, it's, it, you don't know they're coming, especially early season, right? It's just like you hear a twig pop and they're there at 10 yards, you know how it goes. So basically that's what happened. And he, he was probably like 14 yards from me and 10 yards from Dylan. And I was probably like 30 feet up in the air and Dylan was about 20 feet in the air. And I remember the buck looking at him, but we had all these little branches and twigs coming off of this larger trunked trees. And it just provided the perfect cover. You know, he just couldn't silhouette us. So uh, Dylan said that as soon as he saw the buck behind him, uh, even though the camera was pointed in front of him, like in my direction, uh, he pressed record and 16 minutes went by from the time, uh, you know, the buck appeared and he hit record until, uh, I shot the buck and, you know, did like a, a couple minute post interview. So we figured it was in that 13 to 14 minute range from, from when we first saw him to the time I shot him. Okay. So that was the time frame. Do you want me to just go ahead into the, yeah, so, the details of it? So was he cautious coming in or was he just kind of, was he real relaxed? Oh, he was cautious. He was very cautious. He knew something wasn't right, but the, you know, the, the thermals just took over. So, you know, 
I'm assuming that our the wind had blown enough of our scent in that area throughout the day that he could tell something wasn't right as soon as he walked out in kind of like that that opening where we were. So it, but it may not have been a a full nose full of you guys, but maybe a, a diluted type of d- way downwind scent, or maybe he caught a little ground scent coming in, or, or something like that. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You know, you could you could tell, and this is a three and a half year old buck, so it's not like you know he's just uh, throwing caution to the wind here, uh, pun intended, right? Right. But uh, you know, he he could tell something was right wasn't right. And that's why the encounter took so long, you know, and he even, he looked up at Dylan for sure and stared for a minute, you know, but again, we just had superb cover in that tree. So he couldn't really confirm a silhouette, you know, and I don't know that those deer out there are all that accustomed to seeing objects up in the, up in trees anyway. So definitely not like around here, but he just kind of gradually worked his way and he was trying to get, down to where uh he was down thermal of us and you know after a few minutes of him trying to do that he was of course he was walking away from us at that time but um uh, he afforded me a shot at like 14 yards really steep quartering away almost like walking away from me but you know i was high enough that i could get on you know get get a good shot in and um and he was quartering away enough that i just kind of aimed it, you know, basically at the, almost the last rib, not quite, but. So what, what uh, and actually, then, so you got, you got the shot off a hard quartering away shot. Um, when, when you made impact on that buck, what was the first thing that kind of went through your head? Uh, I knew I, I, I hit just a little bit high of where I wanted to, but again, I was like 30 feet high. Uh, and I knew he wasn't going anywhere because I, I, I hit the side of his spine and he just dropped. Okay. So he just dropped right there. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Dropped right there. Gotcha. Well, that's a good, I mean, I'll take a spine shot. I've, I've had a, I mean, obviously it's not where, where you 100% want the arrow to go, but from a tracking job, you know, and from an ethical standpoint, the deer is, pretty much dead i mean when i spined my buck in 2016 uh he dropped right there and it was within i would say 30 seconds it wasn't even a minute before i had another arrow knocked and got one into his heart and then he was then he was toast right so it wasn't like this long drawn drawn out process did you have to put another arrow in him i did but i don't think it was necessary gotcha yeah you know, I think he was—he was—he was well on his way, but like you said, you know, you just not gonna take the chance, or you know, you just don't want to see the animal, right? Uh, do anything but expire quickly. So I just went ahead and put another one in him, and you know, I was really thankful, you know, that he, he didn't go anywhere just because of what we had ahead of us at that point, you know, because you know you're not allowed to have deer carts or any type of wheeled uh, mechanical devices or anything in this place. And, you know, I knew it was going to be a late night. Yeah. So as you, you know, as you climb out of the tree, uh, describe what this deer looked like from an antler standpoint, just so everybody who's listening can visualize. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he had three on one side and four on the other. 
um, you know, it's a, it made it look like an eight pointer, but on one side he, he didn't have uh, whatever it would be a G two or G three. Uh, but good mass, good height, you know, again, the, those deer out there just have really good mass to them. And, you know, more important than what the antlers look like, you know, I could tell that it was, it was a mature buck. And, you know, I, I uh, three and a half year old is typically, you know, my minimal, you know, around here, I'm really going to target like a four and a half year old plus. Uh, but having four days of hunting, on a trip where, you know, my first time being filmed on camera and everything, uh, I knew right away that it was the deer I wanted to harvest. And I got, you know, my standard for that is, uh, is do you get excited, right? Absolutely. If you get excited, you better be, you better be taking the shot. And that's exactly what I did. And it was, it was a ton of fun, you know, just the entire adventure aspect of it, um, was just thrilling. I mean, it was, it was awesome. And to have it all documented, I can't wait to see how the video turns out. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Congratulations, man. Uh, glad it all, all worked out for you. But we're not done with this story yet because <laughs> six miles on a, a kayak and two mile, two and a quarter mile or whatever in means you got to do the same thing to get out. So <laughs> what was the pack out like? So, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. You know, it was, it was a late night and keep in mind, you know, we had to get up at three o'clock in the morning to just to get back to where we wanted to be, uh, you know, for our early morning setup. So, yeah, we got up at three and did all of the things we just mentioned. And then at, you know, at dark, I'm going to say, you know, it was probably nine o'clock by the time we even started cutting on anything after taking pictures and all the good stuff, you know? Um, so we recorded it up and, uh, you know, had it, I had a frame pack that I, I didn't want to have a frame pack up in the tree with me just for, you know, having to wrestle around it and everything. So I stashed it on the ground and just went back and got the frame pack. And, um, then I, so I packed all the quarters and the trimmings in there and Dylan took a, a hind quarter and some trimmings. And then I took, um, a hind quarter, both front quarters and some trimmings. And I uh, secured them in the frame pack. And then I took my regular hunting pack and I put it on my front, you know, so it looked backwards, right? So kind of to counterbalance the weight on the back. And yeah, we had our, uh, our two mile hike out, but again, it's up and down, up and down. It's, it's a lot of, a lot of steep hills, a lot of climbing. I will never forget when we got to the three quarters of the way up the very first hill coming out of that marsh. I was like, holy crap, <laughs> this is legit. My lungs are burning. And I mean, I'm like, holy cow, this is going to be a long night. Uh, but, you know, it is, you just get one step in front of the other, right? It's amazing what you can accomplish. So we, then uh, you, had to, then you had to get to the kayak, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we got to the kayak right around midnight. And then, you know, of course we had our, what, I think it was like a three mile float out. And, you know, of course I got a bunch of meat in the kayak too now. All right. So that makes it interesting. And you're floating out in complete dark, by the way. Uh, there was one time where Dylan and I both hit this, I don't know if it was a log or a rock and it was in the middle of this riffle, but, uh, it was, it was interesting to say the least. I thought Dylan was going in. Uh, but anyway, so, it was 
I think it was one o'clock by the time we got to the to the vehicle that was staged downstream at the takeout, which was Dylan's vehicle, which wasn't capable of holding both kayaks. So we still had to drive his vehicle up uh, to the put-in and get my vehicle and drive it down and load up all the gear. And basically by the time we got back to the little sleeper cabin and, you know, got a bite to eat, uh, we had been up for 24 hours because it was 3 a.m. to 3 a.m. Wow. Wow. By the time we hit the hay. Yeah. So on this, on this river, were you kayaking downstream to get in or upstream to get in? Downstream. Downstream. So then on the way out, were you going downstream to a different parking area or did you have to kayak upstream? No, we went downstream both ways. It like okay. A, it works out to, it's like an eight to eight or nine mile uh, float all, you know, from put in to take out. Gotcha. And you had, you had vehicles in both locations. Correct. Okay. So that night, if you didn't kill anything, you were going to get back in the kayak and float the additional two miles down to the, to the truck and then do it all over again the next morning. Yes. Okay. I got you. All right. That makes sense now. That makes sense. So that's a lot of work, dude. Uh, that's that type two fun that we always talk about, (laughs) you know, like, uh, you know, elk hunting or any type of, you know, this isn't your Missouri tree stand hunt, right? I'm sorry, you cut out a little bit. What was that? This wasn't your, your typical tree stand hunt, right? Where you're, you know, you get out of the truck, you walk across a, a cornfield and, and you, uh, you sit in your ladder stand, right? There's a little bit more work that went into this one. Just a little bit. Yeah. 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 So is this something that, (laughs) is this something that you can see yourself doing again next year? Like the same type, the same area, the same type of hunt? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I really want to go elk hunting again. It's been a couple of years. So, uh, that's going to be the goal, but definitely if, uh, if elk hunting is not in the plans, then I would consider this one, uh, or, you know, there's other ones that I would consider, uh, you know, and it's always fun doing this type of thing in a new environment with a new challenge. Uh, but I'm sure at some point I'll be back to do something similar. All right, man. Well, congratulations on the, uh, the, the first deer of the 2020 season, man. What do you have left on the uh, agenda for 2020? So our uh, Missouri season starts a week from today. Exactly. So September the 15th. And uh, my son and I have our eyes on a few nice bucks around the house here and still have some intel to get on some uh, some local public pieces also. And then, you know, I'm assuming that, we'll, you know, we should be able to get bucks down relatively quickly here, hopefully by October. And then uh, I've got two buck tags in Tennessee. Um, and so I'm hoping maybe make a few extended weekend trips to uh to tennessee and see if i can harvest a buck there or two and then uh you know of course i'll have my second buck tag around the second week of november in missouri outside of that not sure if i'll be doing any other out-of-state stuff or not but that's those are definite cool man well congratulations on uh this this buck out of nebraska and good luck the rest of the season man Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Good luck to you as well. And there you have it. 
Another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Ted. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen and be part of this community, man. I really appreciate that. And I, one of my favorite things is when you guys reach out to me, I try to uh, always respond to the messages that I get, whether it's something simple, you know, if I don't have a lot of time, something simple like congrats or thank you or whatever. Uh, even along the lines of, you know, Hey Dan, take a look at this picture. Where would you set a tree stand? Uh, those types of messages as well. A uh, huge shout out to the partners of the nine finger chronicles podcast. And that of course is our title sponsor vortex wasp broadheads, lone wolf tree stands that the average conservationists and last but not least ozonic scent elimination. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. You'd be doing me a favor and don't forget to use the discount codes that are provided and man, we're good. We're good. Be good. Be good to your neighbor. Send good vibes out into the world. You're going to get good vibes back and uh man it's hunting season i mean a lot of there's been people doing it for a month now but i'm jacked for your success and i'm jacked for my upcoming hunts so keep me posted on how you do uh hit me up through instagram or facebook be sure to subscribe to the nine finger chronicles podcast on itunes or wherever you download your podcasts and uh, follow me on social and i think we're good take care and we'll talk to you next time Thank you.